This morning's message is going to conclude our very brief time in studying the birth of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, I want to encourage all of you, as we start this new year, to continue reading through the Gospel of Matthew. For many of us, New Year's means New Year resolutions, most of which we fail after about week three or four. But I want to encourage you, if you're going to start a Bible reading plan, to stick with it. There are many Bible reading plans out there. Bible reading plans are not supposed to be a chore. They're not supposed to just be a checklist. They're a tool that helps you dig into God's Word. If you are unsure of which Bible reading plan you should choose, you can come talk to me. I love coming alongside people and helping them dig into God's Word. But you could easily just start by going through the Gospels this year. So I would encourage you to continue on in the Gospel of Matthew, even though we are ending after today, to continue on into 2024, reading through the Gospel of Matthew, moving on into the Gospel of Mark, and into the Gospel of Luke, and to the Gospel of John. We want to make sure that as each year passes, we continue to grow in our love and our knowledge of our Savior. These are becoming harder times for Christians in our society. How are we to withstand them if we don't go to the source of our strength, which is God's word? Let us make sure that we start this new year off grounded in his word. The passage this morning focuses on the wise men. Let us be like they are wise by building our foundation on Christ. These wise men, the magi as they're called, they're seeking this divine king. Now, throughout the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew's goal is to demonstrate that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the divine king. That is a theme that you will see all throughout his Gospel in the establishment of this divine king's kingdom. Here, in this historical account, of the wise men, we'll see Matthew do just that. We're going to unpack how the wise men sought this divine king. Perhaps on this last day of 2023, you too are seeking something as the wise men were. You're seeking to end the year on a good note, or at least maybe to start 2024 on a better note. There is no better way to end the year and to start the next year than by worshiping this divine king and remembering what he has done. Our passage today is Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. I'm going to read through the whole passage, and then we'll dig in. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews. For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, 
Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they had offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This morning, as we uh, work through this passage, instead of working through the passage in a linear fashion, as we usually do, going verse by verse, I'm going to draw out three different themes and show you how this passage supports each of those themes. Before we begin, though, I've got to set the historical stage and correct some of our faulty understanding when it comes to the wise men. You see, the wise men were not actually at the manger as our popular culture likes to present. You see most nativity scenes, the wise men are there. That's actually not the case. Now, I'm not saying that you go and throw out your nativities if you have them. I'm not saying that you do that just because they're false. What I am saying is, I don't know when that happened in our history that we started including them at the manger scene, but it's not historically accurate. The passage itself in verse 10 tells us that the wise men are going to a house, which already tells us they're not going to a stable. They're not going to a place where a manger is. They're going to a house. By most scholarly estimates, Jesus is probably two years old by the time the wise men arrive. So this is separate. It is important that we try to be as precise and as accurate as we can when we come to study the word of our Lord. Some people get annoyed with theologians because theologians love to be precise with their doctrine, with talking about the things that scripture teaches us about. But we want to treat God's word with reverence. We want to come before it and treat it well which means also making sure that we understand the historical and cultural context that it's set in. Now after saying all that, let's turn to our first point for this morning. Jesus is the King of Kings. Amen to that. This is the first theme we're going to draw out of the passage. The reason why he is the king of kings is because we're going to contrast an earthly king with the divine king. We're going to contrast two kings throughout this passage. Herod is the earthly king. Let's look at a few verses from our passage to understand this. Matthew 2, verse 3 and 4. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. He is the earthly king ruling Judea at this time. He was put in power by the Roman Empire. Next verse also lets us know that he was the king. Herod summoned the wise men. As a king, he has the ability to do that. And he gives them a command to go diligently to search for the child. 
So Herod is the earthly king that we're going to take a look at. It also can be inferred that he is the earthly king because he didn't know where the Christ was to be born. If he was a divine king, he would know that. He had to consult the religious leaders. King Herod was good for the Jewish people at his time in the sense that he brought about peace with the Roman Empire. He sought to squash Jewish rebellions against the Roman Empire. The Romans disliked Judah because Judah was the problem child in the Middle East, always rebelling against their rule and authority. Here comes along Herod. He's able to politically stop these rebellions. He's able to mastermind and get the religious leaders behind the Roman Empire in support of them. So they put him into power. Historical accounts describe him as a master diplomat and a politician. He's able to accomplish what Rome asked without offending people. However, history also records that Herod was not a good king. In fact, he was a very evil king, a very immoral king. This earthly king who abused his people. Herod ruled for a little over 30 years and committed many atrocities during that time. He was a very paranoid man, history tells us. When he first came into power, the religious leaders disliked him. So you know what he did when he came into power and the religious council, the Sanhedrin, didn't like him? He killed them all and replaced them with religious leaders who would support him. If he got a whiff that you might seek to overthrow him or you disagreed with him, he was very authoritarian and he had you removed, executed, thrown in jail. His paranoia even extended to his family. He had several sons whom he became convinced they were going to try to overthrow him someday. So he killed them. He had them executed. And here in our passage, we see his paranoia on display as well. <clears throat> see, in verses 7 to 8, it says, Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. It's his paranoia showing. He's lying. He doesn't want to go and worship the divine king that has come. He wants to know where the divine king is because he perceives the divine king as a threat to his rule. He wants to know where he is so he can kill the divine king and remove him. See, Herod is already plotting against the Messiah. It's really interesting because Herod is the earthly king of the Jews and the divine king has come, and instead of being excited that the divine king has come, he sees it as a threat. He wants to remove him. However, he can't be honest with the wise men about his plans. They're not going to trust him. So he veils it with a lie about wanting to worship the Messiah. And we know that he is true to this lie because he could have easily sent spies after the, to the wise men to follow them to figure out where the house is or send along a military caravan to find out. But he doesn't do either of those things, history tells us. He just lets the wise men go and trusts that they're going to come back to him and tell him where the Messiah is. 
Now, you might be thinking right now, Herod sounds like a terrible guy. And he is. If you keep reading in chapter 2, you see that he continues to commit more atrocities. He orders the execution of all the firstborn males under the age of two in Bethlehem because he wants to kill the Messiah. He wants to stay in power. Now, I'm going to say something that's going to shock you. But you guys are a lot like Herod, too. And so am I. You're probably like, Pastor Zach, that's crazy. I don't go around killing people. I don't order the execution of people. I'm not obsessed with keeping my own power. But the fact is, we are each our own kings of our own little kingdoms, like Herod. And before Christ invades our hearts and gives us a new heart, we want to be our own rulers. And even after we come to faith in Christ, we still want to be our own rulers in charge of our own destiny. See, most people, when they come to faith, they're very enthusiastic about following Christ as their King and Savior. I always love seeing when people come to faith in Christ for the first time because their zeal for him is just so great. They desire to know this Savior that has saved them. But as time goes on, that enthusiasm begins to fade, right? Some of us have been Christians here for 50 years, 60 years, maybe even 70 we're honest with ourselves, we weren't always that enthusiastic throughout our whole life for Christ. Oftentimes, we found our hearts wandering towards other things. We fall into the snares and traps of sin. We fixate on idols that our hearts yearn after, even though we know Christ is to be the object of our worship. The reformer John Calvin describes the human heart as an idol factory that it continues to churn out idols. So even though we are Christians, we still don't have Christ in his proper place on the throne in our lives. We always are seeking to remove him. Whether we intend to or not. If you don't believe me, let's look at two passages here. This first one is from Romans 3, verses 10 to 12. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands no one seeks for God, and all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. If you're honest with yourself, you probably are sitting here going, well, I'm not a bad person. Yes, I may not keep Christ on the throne in my heart all the time, but I'm definitely better than Herod. It's hard to hear, but Scripture tells us that no one is good. No one seeks after God. It doesn't matter what good deeds you have done. It does not compare to the standard of good that God is, that he is holy, he's righteous, and he's just. We need to be honest with ourselves. We need to be honest with the assessment that Scripture has about our hearts. We are not good. The only one who ever did anything truly good in this world was Christ. We are not righteous, and that's why we needed his righteousness. Our next passage is from Jeremiah, chapter 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? 
This really illustrates John Calvin's description of the heart being an idol factory. Our heart is desperately wicked because even though we are saved now by Christ, we still struggle with the flesh, right? I don't know about you, but I, I'm tired of my flesh sometimes. I wish I was just free of it, that I could freely live for Christ without having to fight against my sin, fight against my sinful desires. Well, those sinful desires come out of the heart, flow out of the heart. We each are our own kings. We don't like to give up our rule and reign so easily. This is the struggle of the flesh. I know many of you today struggle. Some of us get tired of killing the sins that have entangled us for years. But I want to offer you some hope and encouragement. You may be struggling with your sin. You may be struggling to keep Christ king of your heart. You may be failing at that. But I want to give you hope and encouragement. You see, when Christ went to the cross, he didn't just pay for some sin. He paid for all of your sins. Your past, present, and future sins. He took the penalty for all of those sins. So now, you are no longer condemned by the law. No longer condemned for breaking the law. And not only do you receive no condemnation, you also receive Christ's righteousness because he kept the law perfectly for you because he was the only good person who ever lived. And he gives you his righteousness. He clothes you with it. So that when you stand before God on judgment day, God sees his righteousness on you like you had lived the life he lived. I also want to encourage you that even when we do stumble, there is grace at the foot of the cross. That when we do stumble and fall, that when we do continue to fail against that one sin that we're struggling with, run to the cross. Run to Christ. Remembering what he has done will give you the strength to press on and fight against sin. You see, we need to stop with this idea that we can pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and just muscle down and defeat the sin on our own. We need to come back to the cross and rest in his finished work. It's resting in his finished work and what he has done that gives you the strength to move on and fight against sin. It is resting in his love that strengthens and encourages us. It is resting in his work and his love that will continue to transform your life. This is why the gospel is so important. Yes, the gospel is all of our starting points in the Christian life. But we don't just leave it at the beginning. We need it every day. Because every day we still struggle with sin. We need to be reminded of what he has done. So, we've talked about the earthly king Herod. We've talked about how we ourselves are like earthly kings. And now we're going to turn our attention to the divine king, Jesus the Messiah. Christ is the divine king. He's the divine king because he comes from the line of David, as we discussed in a message two weeks ago, which I encourage you guys, if you haven't been following the messages in this series, please go to our website and check them out. 
We want to continue to be students of the word. But we will also see that he is the divine king because he is God, and he was born to be king of the Jews. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? The wise men ask. He is the divine king. Now what separates Jesus from Herod? Is it simply just his divinity, the fact that he's God? It's not just that, it's also in how he rules, how he exercises his power and authority. We see here in verse 6 that the Messiah will be a ruler who will shepherd his people. Was Herod shepherding his people? No. He wasn't shepherding them at all, unless you want to say he was gathering them to execute them. Christ is the good shepherd. He will tend to his flock. He came for us. He left his divine throne in heaven, took on human flesh, humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross for us. That's a good king. He loves us. He came to do that. He bore our sins and gave us his righteousness. But he doesn't just stop there as a good king. He also grants us his inheritance. We get to share in his inheritance. And even better yet, we get adopted into his family. He, what a gracious king. This is why Jesus is the king of kings. And no king will ever surpass him. Ever. He is the divine king. He is not like any king this world throughout all of its history has ever seen. This divine king we get to call our Messiah and Savior. Oh, the depths of his love and his grace for his people. So Jesus is the king of kings. But what about the other kings? The wise men. Now, some of you, being Christmas, you know the song, We Three Kings, right? I have to correct that faulty understanding as well, just like the wise men not actually being at the manger. The wise men were not actually kings. They were called magi, which means that they were wise. They studied the stars. They were educated, affluent individuals, always searching for knowledge and truth. They weren't kings. They were wealthy because of their affluent status, but they weren't kings. The Magi also, here we see, were outsiders. They weren't Jews. So the divine king is born. They're not Jews from Bethlehem or any of the, in the surrounding area of Judea going to see this Messiah. They're outsiders. They come from another land. They come from the east, the passage tells us. The east probably referring to the region of Persia or Babylon. What's interesting is what draws them 
to this divine king, to this Messiah, is light that is provided for, or provided by God in the form of a star. Now, many people don't know if this was just some actual star or event that happened in the sky during that time. Others say that it could be kind of like the burning bush. God's Shekinah glory is what it's called, where he descends and manifests himself in a visible form, a light form, to draw people to himself. We don't know the particulars of this star, but what we do know is that God, because he is light, because he is truth, draws men to himself. And he used this to draw these men to Christ. We also see that these magi, even though they were outsiders, they're on a quest. They're seeking this child, this divine king. What would cause these guys to travel thousands of miles to see this king? Remember, they're not Jews. They're outsiders. They don't really know who this Messiah is per se, but they know that a divine king has been born. They didn't just come to pay their respects to this divine king. They came to worship him. Verse 2b, For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. They're telling Herod this. Notice they didn't say to Herod, We came to worship you, who's the king of the Jews right now. No, we came to worship the king of the Jews, the divine king. In verse 11, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. They worshipped this divine king. They weren't there just to pay respect and to go along their merry way. No, they traveled many miles to see this divine king to worship him because they knew that he was divine. When they met Herod, they neither worshipped him nor fell down at his feet. When they met Herod, they went to him because they thought, oh, he's the king of the Jews. He'll know where the divine king is to be born. He's got to know. He's, he's the king of the Jews. He's got his religious council to ask where this king will be born. He's got the answers. We're not here to worship Herod. We're not here to fall at Herod's feet. We're only here to get information from Herod. That probably annoyed Herod a bit, which we see play out in his paranoia. Remember, Herod wants to keep his power. He wants to be the center of his kingdom. He doesn't want to share that with Christ. We also see in our passage this morning that the wise men brought gifts. Now, these gifts are significant. Some of you may already know this, but some may not. The gifts have... Um, <clears throat> A precise meaning that's worth our attention. In our passage, this is in verse 11. Then opening their treasures, they'd offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Let's talk about each one of these gifts and what they represent. The first is gold. In the ancient world, gold was a sign of royalty. It was the metal that the royals had. The people of power and influence had. 
So why is this significant to us that the wise men would give Jesus gold? It's because Jesus was royal. They knew he was royal. They knew that he was the divine king. He was royal because he comes from the line of David, but he's also royal because he is God himself, the creator and ruler of this world. So gold is representative of Jesus' royalty. What about frankincense? This actually has several meanings. This gift was often associated with a sign of divinity, that it was only used for divine purposes. It was often used by priests in temples to be part of an offering to a divine god or deity. We even see this in the the Jewish temple, that they often use frankincense to create a sweet-smelling aroma that was representative of the prayers of God's people to him. But this is representative of Christ being the only one who can please God the Father, that his sacrifice on the cross is the only thing that gave a sweet aroma to pay for our sins. And he's the only one that can satisfy the punishment for our sins. The last gift is myrrh. This is an important gift as well. This was often used in the burial of the dead. Jesus himself is covered with this after he is crucified. This gift here points to the fact that this divine king will have to die. That he will die someday. Now, we don't know if the wise men truly understand why Christ came. They just knew that this was a divine king they were worshiping. But Christ had to come to earth, born as a baby, live the life that we could never live, go to the cross, and he went willingly, don't forget that, willingly, to take our punishment, to take our place for our sins, gave us his righteousness, and died. But the good news is, he didn't stay dead. He rose again. These wise men, they were the outsiders. They weren't Jews, but they were eager for his coming. This leads us into our next point. God's redemptive purposes extend beyond Israel to include the Gentiles. Gentiles are anyone that are not Jewish. So most of us here are actually Gentiles as well. This was part of God's plan all along. That through this divine king, through this Messiah Christ, he would gather people from all nations to himself and bless all the nations through Christ. In this passage, it's very apparent that the Jewish people did not receive the Messiah. See, Christ was rejected by many Jews. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. The Jewish people, God's chosen people, that God promised the Messiah to. The Messiah's come, and you know what their response is? Ugh. We don't know if we want the Messiah. This is troubling news. 
Contrast that with the wise men who travel thousands of miles to see this divine king, and they're eager and joyful to do that. The Jews rejected the divine king. It wasn't just Herod who was troubled. It was all of Jerusalem. They did not receive their king with joy or eagerness, but instead they despised and rejected him, and they sent him to the cross. Now, this certainly does not mean that all Jews rejected him. We know that Christ's disciples are Jews. But this means, by and large, most Jews did not receive him. We see that the wise men represent the Gentiles because the wise men were Gentiles. They were eager for salvation. The Gentiles receive the blessing of salvation and they receive it with joy. So this is Paul talking about his missionary journey with Barnabas. He says, For the so the Lord <clears throat> has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And this is important. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. That should have been the response of the Jewish people to the coming of their king. They should have responded by glorifying him, receiving him with eagerness. But this was all part of God's plan. God always planned from the beginning to draw people from all nations to himself. Yes, the Jews are his chosen people, but his plan was always much bigger than that. We as Gentiles rejoice at the coming of our Savior. And we see that how God often draws Gentiles to himself is through the light of his truth. As I mentioned before, he used the star to draw the wise men to Christ. You know what he uses today to draw men to himself? His word. His word is light. He leads people today from all nations to the foot of the cross to receive the free gift of salvation. His word, the psalmist tells us in Psalm 119, verse 105, God's word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. This light leads us to Christ. We rejoice at receiving the good news of salvation. This morning is the eve of New Year's. We're about to start a new year. We treat New Year's as a time of fresh beginnings, new starts, starting over with a clean slate, leaving all the stuff that happened to us in the previous year behind. Hopefully, we, we pray. I implore you to consider that God's redemptive purpose grants you this very salvation, that you are included in his redemptive purposes. This divine king, this wonderful savior who was nailed to the cross in your place, when he said, it is finished, 
He paid the penalty for any sin you will, you have or will ever commit. That is your blank slate, your new beginning. Your slate stays clean because Christ's blood covers it. This king who was bloodied and beaten and bruised for our sake came for you. He came for you. Don't forget that. If you don't know Christ today, I encourage you to come to him. Receive this free gift of salvation. Romans 10, uh, verses 12 to 13 states, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I'll leave you with this question. Or questions. Have you called upon the name of the Lord? Have you cried out to him for your salvation? Have you recognized that you can't save yourself? That it doesn't matter that it's a new year and that you're starting over and you're going to try to live better. None of that is going to save you. It's only faith in Christ that will. Receive Christ today. Come to him in faith and repentance. Come to the foot of the cross and experience his grace, love, and mercy. Receive Christ as your sure foundation and start 2024 resting in the finished work of Christ. Bow your heads with me. Lord God, we just praise you for such a great salvation that you have provided. Lord, as the new year begins, equip us and encourage us with your word and your spirit, Lord. Lord, help us as a church to come together to encourage one another. Lord, if there is no one, or if there's anyone here <clears throat> that hasn't come to you and received you in faith, I pray that they do, Lord. Continue to work in their hearts to bring them to that point, Lord. Help them to see the depths of their sin and help them to see their great need for you. God, you are so gracious to us that in your sovereignty, you plan to include all people from all nations in your great plan of redemption. Lord, we are gracious and thankful for that. Lord, continue. Continue to work in and through your church. Help us to be lights in this world that draw people lost in the darkness to you, that they may experience the free gift of salvation. Pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.